July 28, 1996, started out as just another ordinary day for two fishermen at Brixham Harbor in Devon. They started at the crack of dawn, but weren't having much luck. So they decided to take the fishing trawler out much farther than normal, six miles out to a remote area called the Ruffs. When they hauled their nets back in, they noticed that their load was heavier than normal. Something was caught in the net, according to a case synopsis in the true crime book, Murder Most Vile, Volume 19. They thought it might be a baby dolphin. Instead, they pulled out a human body. They called the Devon and Cornwall police. Detectives couldn't find any identity on the dead man. But according to the Plymouth Herald, they did find one big clue. The man was wearing a 25-year-old Rolex Oyster Perpetual watch on his right wrist. The case that would later be labeled the Rolex murder would lead investigators down a road involving an international kidnapping, money laundering, fraud, identity theft, incest, and ultimately murder. It would also lead them to Albert Johnson Walker, con artist, killer, and Interpol's number one most wanted man in Canada. I'm Katherine Townsend, and this is Red Collar. In July 1996, UK police detectives were trying to identify the mysterious body that two fishermen had caught at sea. It was a man, and he was dressed in a long-sleeved shirt, pants with the pockets turned inside out, and brown shoes. He had no identification on him. Investigators say the body was in good condition, which indicated to them that he had not been in the water for an extended period of time. He did have a tattoo on the back of his right hand, which investigators figured out was probably a maple leaf. They wondered, could he have some tie to Canada? The cause of death was unclear. A post-mortem examination revealed several injuries, including a deep gash on the victim's head. His lungs were filled with water, which suggests that he may have still been breathing when he went overboard. Police did not find a match to the man when they searched missing people in the area, which led them to initially lean toward the possibility of this being an accident. He could have hit his head, or been hit with something, like a fishing net, and then fallen off the boat and drowned. But it could also have been foul play. They wondered, was someone else on board? Someone who attacked him and threw him into the sea? The best clue they had was on the dead man's wrist. The Rolex Oyster Perpetual. The Rolex is an amazing piece of machinery. It's waterproof and self-winding. According to experts, These watches keep the correct time for around 40 hours without wrist movement. So investigators were able to figure out the watch had stopped sometime on July 22nd, which meant that the time of death was sometime on July 20th. They turned the watch over and found a serial number. After contacting Rolex, they were able to locate the owner of the watch. Now they had a name, 51-year-old Ronald Platt a former soldier who worked as a television repairman. They also had a last known address in Chelmsford, Essex, around 250 miles away. But when police went to the address, there was no Ronald Platt there. They contacted the landlord who had rented the home to Ron Platt at one point, and he gave police another name of a man who had been listed as Ron's reference for the apartment, David Davis. 
Police contacted David and noted that the gentleman, who had a slight American accent, was very helpful. According to Devin Live, David seemed genuinely distraught when he heard about Ron's death. He told them that he had given Ron money to set up a business in France, and he said he hadn't seen him since June. At this point, police thought that Ron had probably been riding the ferry between England and France and somehow fallen overboard into the English Channel. Police told David they needed a written statement and made plans to drive out to his house. This is one of those where, I know I sometimes say that cases are stranger than fiction, but this really is an example of that happening. The police knocked on the wrong door. That's when investigators got another shock. The elderly neighbor who answered looked really confused. When they asked about David Davis, the man said he had never heard of him. Instead, he told police that his neighbor's name was Ron Platt. He said that Ron worked in finance, had a young wife, and owned a yacht. Now police were figuring out that David Davis had stolen Ronald Platt's identity. But why would David want to become Ron? What was he hiding? Police began quietly investigating David Davis. When they found his yacht, the Lady Jane, in South Devon, the investigation went into overdrive. They were worried that David may flee the country, and they knew they had to make a move. Finally, on Halloween, they raided his house. They found the 52-year-old at home with his 21-year-old wife, Noelle, and two young children. Jason Neal wrote in True Crime Case Histories that when police went inside, they found a literal gold mine. They found around 4,000 pounds in cash. And, in addition to the stack of money, they found two large gold bars hidden in the baby's diaper bags. They found a fortune in other currencies, too. This was pre-Euro, so there were French francs, Swiss francs, and fine art paintings totaling a worth of around $290,000. Police arrested David Davis on October 31, 1997. At this point, they suspected that he may have something to do with Ron Platt's death, but they had no hard evidence. Now, the laws in the UK are a little different than they are in the US. In the US, like we see on so many detective shows, police can't hold you if they don't charge you. But in the UK, police can detain you for up to 24 hours before they either have to charge you with a crime or release you. And in some cases, they can apply to hold you for several days if you're suspected of something serious like murder. The Crown Prosecution Service reportedly gave the detectives a week to come up with something definite. If they didn't, they would have to let David Davis, a.k.a. Ron Platt, walk. David Davis was in police custody, but police were about to learn that David Davis wasn't his real name. It was only one of his aliases. A Swiss bank was conducting its own separate investigation into David's alleged dodgy financial dealings, and they discovered that his real name was Albert Walker. Albert Walker was born in Ontario, Canada. He was a high school dropout and found work doing a number of odd jobs, from selling life insurance to moonlighting as a cattle rancher. Detective Superintendent Phil Sincock, one of the policemen who interviewed Albert, described him to the website Crime and Investigation as, quote, a bit of a Walter Mitty, end quote. D.S. Sincock said that Albert had a history of exaggerating his accomplishments, no matter what his job title was. And by all accounts, it worked. He was an astonishingly good liar. For example, he would be working somewhere, but claim that he was the owner. At one point, he was an assistant librarian, but he told everyone that he was a professor. Eventually, Albert found a steady job as a bank teller for a trust company. 
This put him in a position to do something he did have a true talent for, counting money. For the next couple of years, he developed a side business preparing tax returns for friends. Soon, Albert had more business than he could handle. So Albert quit the trust company and set up a freelance bookkeeping business called Walker Financial Services Incorporated. On the outside, Albert Johnson Walker appeared to be a success story. He was running his own business, making real money as a financial advisor, and things seemed to be going well in his personal life. He met his wife, Barbara McDonald, in 1968 at the University of Waterloo. She was a student there. He was working in the library. The couple married three months later in a university chapel, according to an article in McLean's. They lived for a while in Scotland before coming back to Canada. In 1972, the couple had their first child, a daughter named Jillian. The family were regulars at the local church, where Albert was very active. He served as a youth counselor, taught Sunday school, and was made a church elder. The couple eventually had three more children and lived in a rambling five-bedroom home on the outskirts of Paris, Ontario. Meanwhile, Albert's business was booming. Unlike some red-collar criminals who never actually invest money at all, Albert's company wasn't a Ponzi scheme. At first, he was pretty successful. So successful that in 1980, Walker's Financial started buying companies, first Oxford Bookkeeping Systems, and then, according to McLean's, he acquired more and more businesses so that within a few years, he had multiple branches in Ontario. He told friends, family, and clients that their money was being put into safe investments like government bonds, according to an article in The Star. But in reality, Albert was making highly risky investments and losing money. In September of 1982, Albert formed his most ambitious business yet, a company called United Canvas Corporation. He registered the company in the Cayman Islands. By now, Albert was selling mutual funds, investing in mortgages and helping high net worth clients manage their money. His plan was to buy Canadian government bonds and pay out the earnings in the form of higher share prices. That way, according to McLean's, his clients would be able to benefit from the capital gain because only half of the value would be taxable. Police say the clients, around 70 in all, many of whom were friends that he and his wife had met through church, gave him a total of around $8.7 million. In 1986, a stock deal that Albert invested in collapsed. And the losses really began to accelerate in 1989. That's also when, according to investigators, his double life began to spiral out of control. In some cases, victims gave him the money from sales of their land and property. So Albert had control of their life savings and retirement funds. Elizabeth Staley was one of Albert's victims. She told McLean's that she and her husband became friends with Albert and his wife at church. He helped them sell property, and they gave him most of the $4 million from the sale to invest. It was a similar story with Bill and Sheila Richardson, a couple who the Staley's introduced to Albert. They sold farmland, got over $5 million, and gave Albert most of it to invest. Those two couples alone claimed to have lost more than $2 million. In a sworn statement prepared for the accounting firm KPMG years later, when Albert's victims tried to recover some of their money, investigator King said that the Staley and Richardson millions seemed to be the turning point for Albert. King said, quote, he began to travel extensively throughout Canada, the United States, the Caribbean, Mexico, Britain, and Switzerland. End quote. According to an affidavit, King also said, quote, he began to have extramarital affairs, although at work keeping up the appearance of being a happily married family man. Walker purchased a Jaguar, and his taste in clothing, restaurants, and the good life was on the rise. End quote. 
But under the surface, Albert's business was in trouble. And Albert and Barbara's marriage was falling apart. In 1990, he went to Switzerland with one of his mistresses. The couple split for good in August of that year. Barbara wanted custody of the kids, and Albert reportedly set to work on manipulating the children. This split the family. Sheena and her older sister, Jillian, chose to live with Albert. Barbara got custody of the two younger children, Duncan and Heather. According to court records at the time, Sheena Walker wrote, quote, I don't feel that the relationship between my mother and I contains enough love and affection for us to be together on a daily basis. However, my father shows me a lot of affection on a regular basis, and we are very close, end quote. If you've listened to previous episodes of Red Collar, you know that with this type of criminal, the greatest threat to those closest to them comes at a time when they're afraid of being exposed. The fight-or-flight instinct kicks in, and fortunately for Barbara, this time, Albert chose flight. On November 28th, he charged $12,542 on his American Express card for two first-class tickets on a British Airways flight from Toronto to London. A few days later, on December 5th, he and his 15-year-old daughter Sheena boarded the plane and vanished. The rest of the family and the rest of the world would not see them again for six years. Albert Walker had vanished without a trace, and his estranged wife Barbara was back in Canada trying to pick up the pieces. She had several nasty shocks in store for her. Albert had cleaned out the couple's joint bank accounts and, according to media reports, stolen more than a million dollars. She was left with credit card debts and payments on a $90,000 second mortgage that Albert had allegedly applied for without her knowledge. A private investigator found some even more disturbing information. A family doctor had helped Albert get a prescription for Sheena for birth control pills. The financial advisor and family man who taught Sunday school had embezzled millions of dollars from his clients and friends and was living with his daughter, posing as his wife. In 1993, Canadian authorities charged Albert Walker with 18 counts of fraud, theft, and money laundering. But by then, he had escaped to the idyllic English countryside and become someone else, Ron Platt. Six years later, police investigating the death of the real Ron Platt were looking through the mountain of evidence that they had bagged and tagged at Albert's house. They went back to the fishing trawler captain, and he told them that the fishermen had pulled another odd item out of the net that day, a 10-pound anchor. So police poured through the money and the gold coins, and among all the paperwork from the house, they found a receipt from a nautical shop in Dartmouth for a 10-pound anchor. Investigators were able to confirm the anchor was the same one that had been hauled up with the body. And the 21-year-old wife was actually his daughter, Sheena. Now police needed to figure out Albert's connection with Ron Platt. So they tracked down Ron's ex-girlfriend, Elaine Boyle. This was a name they had heard before, by the way, because they had discovered that David Davis slash Albert Walker's wife, Noelle, occasionally used the alias Elaine Boyle. The real Elaine Boyle was shocked to hear about Ron's death. And she was able to shed light on how he first met the man they knew as David Davis, because she had been the one to introduce them. Elaine described Ron as kind and gentle. And she showed police photographs that she had taken of Ron wearing his watch, which was, she said, his most prized possession in the world. Elaine said she first met the man she knew as David Davis in 1991 in Harrogate, where she was working in an auction house as a receptionist. Elaine described David as charming and engaging. She claimed that he told her he was planning to move to Yorkshire. Then, after knowing Elaine for only a few minutes, 
David offered her a job. Elaine introduced David to her boyfriend, Ron, and the couple and David became fast friends. At some point, David offered them a share in his new company, which he had named the Cavendish Corporation. He said that he was hiding money from his estranged wife, who he described as a successful doctor living in New York. And David was adamant that he did not want her to find him. He told the couple that he did not want his name on any of the paperwork for the company, since his wife was greedy and she wanted to get her hands on his money. Elaine's job was to view property in Europe and to deposit money into her boss's accounts. But none of the properties was ever bought. But Elaine said she was somewhat naive, and the fact that the whole thing was a scam, she said, really only occurred to her in hindsight. She said on the TV series True Crime Stories, in an episode titled An Almost Perfect Murder, that she believed that David was a nice gentleman and that his church attendance reassured her of his pure motives. She told the program, quote, He often talked about God. If somebody is religious, you trust in them, you believe in them, end quote. After all, David was a pillar of the local community in Harrogate. The real Ron Platt, who was born in Canada, always dreamed of moving back someday to his home country. That was why he had the Canadian maple leaf tattooed on the back of his hand. While working for David, Elaine and Ron made trips to other countries where they converted Swiss francs to British pounds. Things were going pretty well, and in late 1992, David gave the couple a Christmas present. He offered them two one-way tickets to Calgary, Canada. There was just one catch. The tickets had to be used by February 1993. Also, David claimed that he would need to be able to take care of business in the couple's absence. So he took Ron's driver's license and birth certificate for the business. He also got Ron and Elaine's signatures made into rubber stamps. He said he could use these to sign business correspondence. In reality, this meant that after Ron and Elaine left the country, David had everything he needed to reinvent himself as Ron Platt. Ron and Elaine went to Canada in 1993. But according to Elaine, they didn't find happily ever after. She admitted that she struggled to settle there, far away from all her friends and family. So after just five months, she told Ron she wanted to go home. Ron stayed, and the couple split. But Elaine said there was absolutely no animosity. They knew they were going their separate ways, and they agreed to stay friends. She went back to the UK. At first, David Davis tried hard to convince Elaine to go back to Canada. But after a while, Elaine found it harder and harder to reach David. He moved out of his house in Harrogate and left no forwarding address. What she didn't know was that for the next three years, he and Sheena lived in southeast England as Mr. and Mrs. Platt. Meanwhile, Ron was having problems of his own in Canada. He struggled to find work, and in 1995, he decided he wanted to return to the UK as well. Now Albert had a problem. The real Ronald Platt was coming back. One of them would have to disappear. For a long time, Elaine did not have much contact with her ex-boyfriend, Ron Platt. She assumed he was living happily in Canada. But over the years, she occasionally would play back the strange set of circumstances that happened with her former boss, David Davis. And she started to get suspicious. So when Elaine learned that Ron was dead and that police suspected David Davis may have been involved, she was terrified. The police asked for Elaine's help. She was scared, but she immediately agreed to act as bait. She set up a coffee meeting with David in a train station. 
Chelmsford police were along for this sting. But it was a bust in the end because David didn't show up. Police were building a circumstantial case against David, whose real name was Albert Walker. Investigators were searching the Lady Jane for evidence. And on the boat, they found fingerprints on a bag that belonged to Ron Platt. They also found three hairs attached to a chunk of skin on a seat cushion. DNA testing proved that the hairs had come from Ron's head, and investigators said they had almost certainly been ripped out by the killer. Police believe that Albert Walker lured Ron out onto the boat, then hit him over the head with an anchor. The forensic team also found zinc residue on the inside of Ron's leather belt, and testing proved that it was similar to the zinc used on the anchor. So authorities believe that while Ron was bleeding, confused, and incapacitated, Albert stuck the anchor into his belt and threw him overboard. So police had some physical evidence. They also had the GPS, which showed that the boat was in the same general area that the body was pulled up on around July 20th. And of course, they had the Rolex. Albert Walker was charged with the murder of Ronald Platt. His trial began in 1998. On April 27th of that year, he pleaded not guilty. Albert did plead guilty to defrauding over 70 of his clients of their savings, but he denied killing Ronald Platt. He took the stand and appeared confident and relaxed. Albert admitted that he had lied about his identity and committed fraud, but he didn't answer the questions on everyone's mind, including who was the father of Sheena's children. Albert carefully avoided disclosing the exact nature of his relationship with his daughter. Investigators made it clear they believed that Albert was the father of Sheena's two children, but this was never publicly confirmed. Whatever the case, at his murder trial, Albert did his best to portray himself as a loving father who had nothing to do with Ron's death. Albert told the court that he didn't want his daughter to come to England with him, but, quote, she wanted to come and pleaded with me, end quote, according to a report in the Globe and Mail. He said that he took care of his daughter after she became pregnant out of wedlock. He said, quote, all sorts of girls have children out of wedlock. Don't let it bother you, end quote. Whatever happened behind closed doors, the world was about to find out what a brave woman Sheena was when she took the stand, giving testimony that would launch a devastating blow to the defense. Sheena testified that she had been hypnotized by her father. She said, according to the Globe and Mail, quote, My father suggested that because there was a small child, we should present ourselves as a couple, end quote. She told the court that she had not been with her father on the day that Ron Platt was killed. And further, she knew that he had been out on the boat because he came home late and soaking wet. According to McLean's, Albert Walker said, quote, Ron Platt was a very nice person. I have no reason in the world to ever kill him or ever harm him, end quote. Albert continued to show no remorse. He said the forensic evidence found on the Lady Jane, including traces of Ron Platt's blood on cushions, must have been there because Ron hit his head at some point. British courts found Albert guilty, and he received an automatic life sentence for the murder. According to Devon Live, Mr. Justice Butterfield told Albert, quote, It was in my judgment a callous, premeditated killing designed to eliminate a man you would use for your own selfish ends. The judge said that Albert murdered Ron because he believed that Ron was, quote, increasingly a possible threat to your continued freedom. He became not merely expendable, but a danger to you, and he had to die. The killing was carefully planned and cunningly executed with chilling efficiency, end quote. 
That same year, the Canadian court charged Albert with 37 counts of fraud, bumping the charges up from the original 18. He eventually pleaded guilty to 20 counts of fraud and theft-related charges and was sentenced to five additional years in prison. He was sent to a British facility in 1999. But he continued to insert himself into his family's lives. He requested a transfer back to Canada to finish serving his sentence. And in 2005, he got his wish. He was extradited back to Canada. He's now serving out his life sentence in British Columbia. After years of being trapped with Albert Walker, his daughter Sheena spoke out about the horrors that she endured when her childhood was stolen from her. She called Albert an evil man and a con artist who, she said, quote, manipulated me and lied to me just like everybody else, end quote. His family has stated multiple times they don't want him near them and they remain terrified of him. Sheena said, according to the Globe and Mail, quote, I believe he's a dangerous individual. I'm scared of him and feel very threatened by his presence here in Canada. I don't want any contact with him. I want to move on with the rest of my life and have some closure on this, end quote. In 2015, Albert put in an application for parole, which would have allowed him to leave the prison for short periods with an escort, but later withdrew his application, according to the Parole Board of Canada. Investigators have gotten some of the money back, though it's only about $1 million of the reported $2.5 to $3.2 million that he conned his clients out of. The location of the rest of the money, if it hasn't been spent, remains a mystery. Investigators say that Albert Walker wanted to commit the perfect murder. And the really scary thing is, he almost got away with it. At the time he was killed, Ron Platt was an ideal victim. He kept himself, and he had no friends or family to come looking for him. And it was a one in a million shot that the trawlers picked up Ron Platt's body in the open sea. Police caught another lucky break when Ron was still wearing his beloved secondhand Rolex. Then there was the good detective work. Detectives who knocked on the door took the time to follow up leads, develop the evidence, and really dig deep to find the motive and understand this crazy story. Elaine mentioned that in hindsight, there were red flags in David's business dealings, but he seemed so friendly that she ignored her instincts. Red car criminals are often very good liars. So the best protection that we have, according to Richard Brody and Kent Keel in a paper titled From White Collar Crime to Red Collar Crime, is, quote, awareness by consumers, government, employees, corporations, and executives, end quote. Committing fraud is not necessarily a nonviolent crime. In fact, money can motivate people to extreme acts of violence. One of the policemen who worked on the case said, quote, I think this was the most unusual case I've ever had. It was a real, almost Agatha Christie storyline. It's one of those cases that comes along only once in your career. If you wrote a fictional script with the ins and outs that happened in this case, nobody would believe it. It would seem too far-fetched, end quote. Albert Walker has been jailed for life, and I don't know what his parole status is now, but in my opinion, he should never, ever be let out. If anyone on the parole board is considering releasing him, they may want to keep in mind this man is a brilliant liar. Police say that when he made a bail application, he actually managed to convince two prison guards to help with it. And in the month between the time that Ron's body was identified and Albert Walker was ID'd, Albert had bought 67,000 pounds worth of gold bullion. That's because, police believe, he was getting ready to run again and probably become someone completely different.
Red Collar is an AudioChuck original podcast. Research and writing by me, Katherine Townsend, with production assistance from Alyssa Gostola and Resonate Recordings. You can find all of our source material for this episode on our website, redcollarpodcast.com. So what do you think, Chuck? Do you approve? Oh!